So we are in chapter 20 of the story. Uh, We have been in this journey for some time now, right? We're 20 weeks into the story. Uh, We started, when did we start? Last fall, and it's like it's it's been continuing on and continuing on. We're about two-thirds of the way through, and we are almost to the end of the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. Right? We have been going through the Old Testament, and, and over the last several weeks, we've been going through the times of the prophets, and, and through these just week after week, really dark times, times where the people have been unfaithful, times when the people have been taken off into captivity, uh, things have not been great, right? And so we are desperately in need of Jesus, And so we are only a couple weeks away from Jesus. And so this is is a little bit of a turning point this week with chapter 20. We are in the story of Esther. And so if if you're visiting with us, we have been going through a resource called The Story that gives us really a a high-level view of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We're going through um, excerpts of Scripture in, in each chapter And so this week, we're focusing on chapter 20, which is the entire book of Esther. We're going to go through the entire story of Esther this morning together and try to pull out some lessons for ourselves as we look at the story of this queen of beauty and courage. So we've got this king, this King Xerxes. He's king of Persia. This is where many of the the Jews have been deported to. He's the king, and he is powerful, and he is wealthy, and he wants to show that off. And so what better way to show off your wealth and your success is to throw a party, right? You want to host this great party to show off your castle and show off all your food and all your wine and more wine and a little bit more wine. And so we're going to throw this big party. And he doesn't throw a party for a day. He doesn't throw a party for a week. He throws a party for 180 days. This is a party, right? Look at King Xerxes and his great wealth. He can throw a party and just celebrate for 180 days. And so he gets to the end of this party, and it's not enough. He wants to have an after party. So he has an after party for the 180-day party and has another seven days of celebration for the people of the city. And so it is at the end of this seven days that he decides he wants to show off his prized possession. He wants to show off his queen. And so he summons Queen Vashti, and, she, and he wants her to come in to be seen by all of these men at how great this queen is. And so on the last day of the party, a pretty inebriated king has this to say, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, these guys, to bring before him Queen Vashti, we don't need to know their names, right? Wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. Some commentators think it was only her crown that she was invited to wear. But when the attendants delivered, this gives you a picture of what this story is, right? So the queen is summoned to the king and all these drunk men to come into their presence wearing her crown. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, 
Queen Vashti refused to come. She didn't just refuse to come to dinner. She refused to come as an object of sexual possession. And the king became furious and burned with anger. So Queen Vashti here is in this situation where the king has commanded her to do something, and she takes this strong moral stand and says, I am not going to do this. I am not going to go up here as a sexual object in front of a bunch of drunken men. But this does not go over well. Xerxes is not happy. He is furious that the queen would reject his commands. And so he consults his lawyers to find out what is to be done with a woman who will not obey her husband. They fear that this will get out, that word will get out, that the queen did not obey the king, and there is just going to be mass chaos among the women, right? They're just going to do whatever they want, and they're not going to follow what their husbands say, right? So there's a little bit of social unrest going on here. And so he consults his lawyers and says, what do we do about this woman? She's the queen and she has rejected my command. And the lawyers come up with this great idea, as, as lawyers do. They've got um, great ideas, right, Phil? So um, we've, got, we've got great ideas here. And so their idea is to banish the, king, the queen from the king's presence. We're going to cast her out of the, the king's presence. And we are going to send notice to the entire kingdom to make sure men are ruling their household well. We need to keep those women in line. And so they send out this command to all the kingdom that the queen and her behavior is not tolerated, and this behavior will not be tolerated anywhere else. And so this is their solution to the problem. And so this is just all backstory to get us to our real story, right? where we meet Esther. Because now we have a king who is kingless, and kings don't like to be kingless, right? They want to have a queen. And so he is missing this critical piece of, of what he desires. And so he has to figure out a way to get a queen. And as any good Persian king would do, he has a, a Miss Persia beauty pageant, right? And so, so we're going to have like the ultimate example of the bachelor, and we're going to have the king, the most eligible bachelor of the land, and we're going to bring in all of these women to show off and to woo the king and attract the king, and he's going to pick the best one to be his queen. And so we have this beauty pageant that comes along, and we meet and are introduced to Esther for the first time. Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So we've got this orphan girl who is being raised by her cousin. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we've got the start of an underdog story here, right? We've got this orphan girl who's taken in by her cousin, and she's being raised, and she is, is lovely and pleasant, and she is one of the eligible bachelorettes. So she is brought into the, the, the palace and brought in for 12 months of beauty treatment before she can meet the king, right? So guys, you thought your wife takes a long time to get ready for a night out, right? It takes... Sorry, it's Valentine's Day is over. I'm off the hook, right? No. 
And Laura's not in here. She's listening on the speaker and can't say anything to me. Now. Now. She's going to come running in here. I better watch out. My wife does great. She gets here at 8.30 every Sunday morning with two kids in tow, one of which is a newborn, to be able to lead our, our praise team. And so thank you, Laura, for her early arrival. I'll dig out of that hole. So there's 12 months of beauty treatments, right? We'll just leave it at that. And so Esther goes through and participates with this group of women for 12 months of beauty treatments. Every crack of the door, I'm going to be like worried. All right, so, so Esther goes through this beauty tra- treatment, and so she is striking, she is beautiful, and she wins the favor of the king, and she becomes the winner of this contest. She gets the crown, and she's victorious and wins. She goes home with the final rose. And so now we've got this little side story that seems to be a little out of, of place, But we've got Mordecai, remember her cousin that's been raising her. Mordecai uncovers this assassination plot against the king. He's at the the king's gate. He overhears this conversation of two people who are angry with the king, and they are plotting to assassinate the king. And so he tells Esther this, Esther who is now the queen. He tells her about this assassination plot. She goes to the king and tells the king about this assassination plot. They go, investigate, and, and discover that it is true, and they catch the guys, and they, they execute the guys, and the king is saved. And, and this story is written down in the annals of the king's work. He, he's got this big, giant book or something where he keeps track of everything that happens. And so this is written down here for him to remember it some other day. So remember that. It seems unimportant now, but it will be. And so now we have, so we've got the character of Xerxes, the king. We've got the character of Esther. We've got the the character of Mordecai. And now we have this character, Haman, who comes in. He is one of the king's nobles. He is one who rises up in power in the king's court. He, He gains increasing influence, and the king appoints him to pretty much be second in command of the kingdom, right? So here is a powerful guy. He also happens to be a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. Does anybody remember Agag? This is one of the opposing kings against Saul. So Saul, way back here in the story, and they're fighting against King Agag. So, So here is a descendant of that enemy, who is now Haman in this story. And so by king's order, everyone is to honor Haman by kneeling to him. And so, so Haman is one that is pretty full of himself. He, he is in love with himself. He is addicted to power, and he wants everybody and, and really enjoys the fact that people are bowing down to him. But there is one who refuses to bow. Mordecai will not bow to Haman. He refuses. And Haman, who loves power, oh, this just sets him on fire, right? He is just furious that Mordecai would not bow This is just an outrage to him. And so here in Esther chapter 3, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, so he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, 
throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman has this, this angry relationship with Mordecai, and he's going to go beyond just doing something against Mordecai. He wants to do something against all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And so he goes to the king, and he convinces the, the king to give him the power to do something about this. The king gives him his signet ring to, to make it king's law that all the Jews will be exterminated from the kingdom. This is incredibly severe, right? The amount of power that Haman has to convince this king to give him the authority to execute an entire people from the kingdom. And so imagine what is going on in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish heart, in the community as they receive news of this. That feeling of God has abandoned us. God has abandoned us. But we have to remember that even if God is out of sight, like Clint mentioned earlier, God himself is not mentioned in Esther at all. God seems to be out of sight, and so we get, to in, we get into times of crisis, we get into times of, of hurt and brokenness and fearful situations, and God seems like he's abandoned us. But even if he is out of sight, we are not out of his sight. That God still has us in his sights and is still caring for us and is still the author of this story. And so when things turn for the worse in our own lives, we don't conclude that God has abandoned us. God is there. And that is the upper story that we see as we progress through here. That God loves for and cares for his people in a very real and passionate way. We remember the promises of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with his people. And we see that in the upper story as we go through chapter by chapter. But in the lower story, there's this major crisis going on, right? There has been this edict from the king's court that says all the Jews are to be killed. And so here, here are, is the, the law that's passed in Esther chapter 3. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces from, with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. So we're going to kill them three times. We are going to destroy them. We are going to kill them. We're going to annihilate them, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this is what is sent out to the kingdom. Another verse later, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, so they take this message out. The edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. So this command goes out, and the king and Haman just decide to have a drink. It's just another day at the office for them, right? But the city of Susa is completely baffled by what's going on here. Why is this command given? What, what is going on here? There, there is no situation that would constitute the need for annihilating the Jews, and so what is going on in this palace? People wonder. And Mordecai, along with the city, they hear this news, but, but Mordecai is not bewildered. He is not 
baffled. He is grieved. Mordecai is grieved because his people are now under attack. And so he pleads with Esther to go to the king and plead their case to the king. And she responds to Mordecai and says, I can't. There's no way that I can go in front of the king uninvited. I cannot just go into his presence. I haven't even been invited to see him for the last 30 days. I can't just walk up and and make the case here. Law restricts that, that only one who is summoned by the king can approach the king. And so Esther throws up her hands and says, I can't do that. And on top of all that, it is still a secret that she is a Jew. It's a secret that that she is a part of these people that are getting ready to be killed. And so for her own safety, she needs to stay quiet. And this is how Mordecai responds. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Just because you're in the king's house doesn't mean you're going to be safe from this edict. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God's going to be faithful to his people no matter what. Relief will come from somewhere. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You have come to this place for this specific calling, for this specific thing. So why have you gone from orphan to first lady? Why have you had this drastic transformation? Why have you been brought in by your cousin and then brought in to the king's court to become queen? Does God have a plan for you? Does he have a role for you to play in the situation? Mordecai says, this is the time. This is the time for you. You are here for this purpose. We have found ourselves in, in similar situations. We, fi- we find ourselves in a situation where we have to make a stand, where we have to say something, where we have to make a decision. We're in a class and a professor or a teacher is attacking our faith and our belief. We're in a work situation where a boss asks us to do something unethical. We're in a situation where we have a coworker that we've confided marital problems with and then they begin to flirt with us. We've been in situations where, where friends mock our morality. We're in a culture that has shades of gray that we go and, and see the distortion of what marriage should be, a distortion of what sexuality should be. We have people, we have culture, we have governments, we have neighbors, we have teachers attacking and questioning what it is that we believe in. We're confronted with these decisions, right? Right? Do we participate? Do we hide? Do we retreat? Do we make a stand? These are the moments of truth for our lives today. And so Esther is in this place. She is in this place at just the right time. You haven't been brought to this place just so you can have some fancy jewelry. You haven't been brought to this place just so you can have a new wardrobe. You haven't been brought to this place so you can just feel good about the status that you have. You have been brought to this place to make a difference, to make a stand, to be bold. And so it's God's desire that that the people be sustained, that the Jewish people be sustained so that a Messiah can be born 
to save them and to save us. And so Esther, in her comfortable palace, is confronted with this, what to do. And she's convicted that this is a time for her to do something. She is called into something very specific, and she has to be faithful to that calling. And she knows that she can't do it on her own, so she sends this message back to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she makes the right choice. She decides to make this stand. And it's not a light decision. To to walk into the presence of the king has consequences of death. And she's going in here and doing this. She will make the stand. She's willing to risk everything to save her people. But she doesn't go at it alone. She doesn't go at it by herself. She invites her community to join in with her. She invites her community to fast for her, which means also praying. Because it's only going to be by the power of God that she can confront the king and something happen. And so she calls the people to pray for her. When we fast, we are communicating that God will be our nourishment, that we are fed by him, not by food. Fasting is something that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. It's a, it's a discipline that, that some practice, but we, we kind of don't talk about a lot. But fasting is an expression of your dependence on God. That I'm going to give up the things that I think I need. I'm going to give up the things that make me comfortable. I'm going to give the, up the earthly things that satisfy me, and I'm going to give that up so that it's God that nourishes me. It's God that fulfills me. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And if you follow the, the, the traditional Christian calendar, Ash Wednesday is a day that starts 40 days of Lent that leads up to Easter. And so Ash Wednesday is a time where we, we celebrate and reflect on the grace of God. And we are able to celebrate that because we see the brokenness of ourselves that we see the sin and we see the, the brokenness and the need for a cross. And it leads into 40 days of, of giving up of ourselves for the sake of reflecting on who Jesus is. And it helps prepare us to appreciate all the more what Easter is all about. The resurrection of the Messiah. And so, through this time of Lent, we give up things, we, we sacrifice things, we fast so that we can show our dependence on God. And this is probably something that most of you have not, you, you have not experienced that or you have not exercised that discipline of, of fasting through Lent. But it's such a valuable time for us to, to be able to just give something up, give up something that makes you comfortable, something that you've grown a little bit too dependent on. Maybe it's something like TV, or maybe it's something like Facebook, or video games, or, or a certain kind of food, or something that, that you have grown dependent on. It makes you comfortable, and it makes you a little too comfortable. 
And so we give those things up for 40 days to be able to focus that time, to focus that energy, to focus those emotions on Jesus. And so I want to challenge you to, to think about how you might go through the next 40 days as we get ready for Easter. How can you shift your focus more on the nourishment of Jesus and less on the flesh? Fasting is an act of surrender. It's me saying, God, you are my source. You are my strength, nothing else. And so, like Esther, this is particularly important in times of stress, times of anxiety, times of crisis, that we depend on God more than we have ever depended on him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We cast our anxiety on him because he cares for each of us. So Esther gets the help of her community to fast and pray. And then she goes in uninvited to the king. This is the moment of incredible risk where she approaches the throne uncertain of what her future is. And by God's grace, the king extends his scepter and receives her, and invites her to speak. And so the moment that she has feared is now safe, and she has one simple request. I want to have dinner. I want to have a banquet for you, and I want to invite Haman as well. And so they have this banquet, and they get to this en the end of this banquet, and the king is like, what is your request? Queen Esther, I will give you up to half of the kingdom. What is your request? And, and she doesn't feel like the time is quite right, and so she asks for another banquet. I want to have another banquet tomorrow. And so the king and Haman are invited to a second banquet. Now, in the meantime, Haman can't wait for the extermination of the Jews to deal with Mordecai. Mordecai is just infuriating him. And so he builds this 75-foot gallows in his front yard and has this plot to execute Mordecai because he cannot wait. And so he plans on the next morning going to the king and requesting to the king being able to execute Mordecai. And so Haman goes to bed, has this plan in place. The king can't sleep. And so the king is up all night, and he calls for his attendants to start reading from this big book of history. And they read the story of this assassination attempt. And this guy Mordecai, who spoke up and saved the king. And the king is so impressed by this story, apparently he didn't even know that this was happening, and so he wants to know, was Mordecai honored for his work at saving the king. And the attendants say, no, he hasn't, been, he hasn't been honored yet. He's been forgotten about. This is years later. And so the next morning, Haman shows up for work, ready to ask the king to execute Mordecai. And the king interrupts him and first says, hey, Haman, I've got this guy that I want to honor. And Haman, the self-important, self-obsessed guy, says, oh, this is he wants to honor me, right? I've done good, and the king wants to honor me, and the king is now asking me what to do to honor someone like me. And so Haman paints the picture of, of this great honoring 
That you would put him up on the king's horse and you would put a king's robe on him and you would, you would walk him around town and, and lead this horse around town saying, this is one that the king honors. And so Haman has this great plan and the king says, great, I want you to go do that for Mordecai. And Haman's like, yo, wow, this is the guy that I wanted to execute, right? And now he has to do this for Mordecai. And so Haman puts Mordecai up on this horse and gives him the robe and walks him through town and goes home absolutely hacked off, right? This was not the way he planned this day to go. And so he goes home and he gets ready for this banquet with the king and queen. Hopefully something good will come of that, right? Well, the day gets worse, right? He goes in for this second banquet and the queen is there. The king asks her again, what is it that you are requesting of the king? And the queen, with great courage, says this. She answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She quotes it right there, right? Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther. Apparently, he doesn't know what's going on in his own kingdom here. Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. A bad day has just gone worse. And all the blood washes out of Haman's face, and the king is furious. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. So he's so mad, he just has to get out of the room. This sounds scary. And Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And as he goes over to beg for his life, he trips over a Persian rug and lands on top of her. Just as the king comes back into the room. Things are getting even worse, right? And so now here Haman, or here the king is catching Haman on top of his wife. He immediately calls for his execution. And there's this little attendant over in the corner that says, hey, you know, there's, um, there's this 75-foot gallows that's been built in, in Haman's front yard. It hasn't been used yet, right? Maybe we can make use of that. And so Haman is hung on his own instrument of execution that was designed for Mordecai. And so Mordecai is honored. The people are rescued and are saved. And so we look at the story, and we look at what is in it for us. What are the examples for us? What, what can be changed for us? And the first thing is this. We need to look for opportunities. 
Queen Esther was given this incredible opportunity to make a stand. God has given us successes in particular areas. How has he blessed us? How has he connected us with certain people? How has he put you in unique situations? What are the opportunities that he's laying out before you? He has not given you those things just so you can be selfish with them. If you are really excelling at work and and have received great promotions, what is it that God is giving you in those situations? If you have gained popularity, if you have have gained relationships, if you have gained wealth, if if whatever those situations are, if you have gained some sort of, of advantage, what is it that God might be calling you to do in those things? Because he has not given you those things just to have for yourself. What has he given you? We don't go to a place of self-preservation. We don't go to a place of self-centeredness. We join in with the mission of God. Where is he calling us to be? So many times we lose sight at God's mission in the opportunities around us. We think those are just things for us, and we become comfortable with our success. We become comfortable with our prosperity. But what are the opportunities that he's presenting? What if you took the position that you're in, in, in life right now, whether it's a good circumstance or a bad circumstance, if you took that and started asking, how can I serve your purposes? In this situation that I'm in, this job, in this, in this classroom, in this place that I'm at, how can I serve your purposes? The second thing is this, invite God into the process. We need to invite God into the process. Queen Esther recognized the opportunity, and she asked God to be a part of it. She she spent time in fasting and in prayer. We become so self-reliant that even if we have enough courage to see the opportunity that God has given us, we take on that opportunity within our own strength. And this is me preaching to myself right now. It's like even if we step out into the opportunities that God gives us, we cannot do those things in our own efforts. We cannot do those things in our own strength. We have to invite God into the process. Esther knew that she could not face the king on her own. She could not walk in and approach him in that way. She would have to have God's help. She would have to be dependent on him. And so she fasted and she prayed. And so we need to commit ourselves to intentionally and intensely inviting God into the process. The third one is join with others in the mission. She invited the community to join her. We we don't go out on mission on our own. We don't do this ourselves. We are a fiercely independent people. We have this lone ranger mentality where we are going to go out and we're going to do it ourselves but we were not created to engage in the mission of God alone. We were not created to engage in what God is calling us to without the community. And so Esther invited her community into prayer and into fasting. And she also had this relationship with Mordecai, one who could speak into her life, one who could challenge her, one who could encourage her, one who could guide her. And so she opened herself up to the leadership of Mordecai. 
And so who do you allow access to your life? Who do you let in to speak honestly to you? Who do you let in who can tell you when you're being selfish? Who has that kind of access to your life where they can look and in a trusting, loving way, you guys can have a, a dialogue about where you're getting off track? Because those relationships are so important. We can't do it alone. And the final thing is have the courage to speak up. Have the courage to speak up. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. We have to have the courage when confronted with things, when put in a difficult situation, when, when put into something questionable, when, when things are being attacked, when our beliefs are being called into question, when our morality, when our ethics are being challenged, we have to have the courage to speak up. And that's tough, right? That is tough. But we have a God who is there with us in all situations. He has never lost sight of us. And so here we have the story of Esther. This orphan girl, this nobody, who's being raised by her cousin, who takes the opportunities that God gives her and makes an incredible impact on the story that God is writing. Let's be standing together. You may look at your life and feel defeated. You may look at your life and say, hey, I'm not a queen. We don't have anybody in here who has the, the, the situation that Esther is in of, of being winner of the beauty pageant and becoming queen, right? But we all find ourselves in situations where our faith is called into question, our stand, our integrity is called into question. We've had these situations, we have these opportunities where we can be on mission for God. And we do that together and with His power. And it's through that we gain great courage. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer together. This is a time for us to be together. This is a time for us to, to lift up our concerns, to ask one another, to, to pray for things. This is a time that you can come forward and pray with one of the shepherds. It's a time that you can pray with one another in the pews. You can get together with your small group or, or as a couple or with friends. You can walk across the aisle because you know somebody here needs prayer. This isn't just a time for you to receive. This is also this is also a time for you to give because you know better than anybody what's going on in this room. So go pray for that person who's stuck looking for a job or, or waiting for medical results or needing something. Go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you because we are on mission together as a family. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your words to us. God, we pray for your strength. We pray for your courage. We pray for your encouragement as we go into mission for you, as we seek out opportunities to honor and glorify you. God, I pray that you will, will give us the confidence and the boldness 
to speak up and do the things that you've called us to do. God, we give this time of prayer to you as we share with one another. God, we love you. And we thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray.